This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Mark Blinn is the director of the Family Constellation Institute in San Francisco. The main focus of his work is healing trauma. Mark believes that the traumas of our parents, our grandparents, and even our great-grandparents can live on in us, particularly if it's unresolved. He wrote a book about it called It Didn't Start With You, How Inherited Family Trauma Shapes Who We Are and How to End the Cycle. It's fascinating and full of helpful tools and skills for freeing yourself from harmful patterns. During my conversation with Mark, he talked about how to get to the root of an issue and why the clues we're looking for often lie in our past and our family's history. For those of you who are listening, who struggle with an issue that feels somehow like it's not your own, his book and this recording are hopefully incredibly helpful. I think his perspective is both nuanced and compassionate. I hope you'll find the same to be true. So yes, it's very important we do our inner work, that we Find out what our core language is, our trauma language. What's our verbal trauma language? What's our nonverbal trauma language? People always ask me, how do I know if I'm affected with inherited trauma? And I always say, there's signs. Let's get to my conversation. I loved your book. And I'd heard about Hellinger and have danced around this idea of family constellations. But it was so nice to get a thorough examination of it. And then... It's like the I got my mom to get the book with her sister, and they've been book clubbing it and workshopping it, which is a great relief to me because I certainly resonated with a lot of what you write about how we pass these things on intergenerationally, these traumas, and we're not necessarily even conscious or aware of what they are. Some of them have been repressed or never spoken of again, but then they just 
follow us, right? Until we resolve them and set them free. So can you sort of give everyone an idea of like how this shows up in people's lives and what the mechanism is for intergenerational trauma? Sure. My pleasure. So let's say that one of our parents or grandparents suffered a trauma. Maybe they lost their mother or father when they were young, or they were sent away themselves and placed in foster care or an orphanage, or one of their siblings died tragically. And this is a type of event that can break the heart of a family, rigidify a family. The reaction to the trauma doesn't necessarily stop with the person or the people that experienced it. So the feelings and the sensations, specifically the stress response, can be passed on to children and grandchildren. And now there's biological evidence for this. Technically, when, when a trauma happens, it changes us. It causes a chemical change in our DNA. And this can change how our genes function, sometimes for generations. So there's a chemical tag that attaches to our DNA after a trauma. And it tells the cells to use or ignore certain genes because of what just happened, enabling us to better deal with this thing that just happened. And then the way our genes are affected can change how we act or feel. For example, we can become sensitive or reactive to situations that are similar to an original trauma, even if that original trauma occurred in a past generation. So we have a better chance of surviving it in this generation. I'll I'll give you an example. If if our grandparents come from a war-torn country, so there's bullets flying and bombs going off and uniformed men lining people up in the square, people being shot, people taken away. Our grandparents, they would develop an adaptation, a skill set, which they would then pass forward. Let's say that skill set is sharper reflexes or quicker reaction times or reactions to the violence to help us survive the trauma they experienced. But the problem is we can also inherit a stress response, their stress response, with the dials set to 10. And here we are preparing for this war catastrophe that never arrives. And, and we rarely make the link that mm-hmm. our anxiety, our hypervigilance, our depression is connected to our parents and grandparents. We just think we're, we're wired this way. Yeah. No, and it's so startling. Some of the stories in the book are really compelling. And of course, there's the epigenetic explanation for it, but it also feels like there's certainly a spiritual component at play. The story of the 19-year-old who essentially loses his scholar. He becomes a, a victim of extreme insomnia, And that story was amazing. I know you work with tons of people who are Holocaust survivors. Clearly, what we're dealing with right now in the context of Black Lives Matter and also Indigenous people and the traumas that they collectively received, it's wild to – it's not wild, actually. It's the opposite of wild to think about some of those atrocities in the context of how people today are affected. And yes, some of it is systemic, for sure, and has been perpetuated. But some of it is a deeper wound 
that they're carrying. Do you mean a collective trauma that we're all carrying? Or are we that we're talking- all carrying? Yeah, both, I think. So, so in the context of someone who's lost family in the Holocaust, there's the the collective. And I think that in some ways, Germany has done a much better job than we have in this country of addressing that cultural crime and right. trying to address it. You don't see statues of Hitler all over the country, certainly. And it's a great shame. It's a never again conversation. And clearly, there's still anti-Semitism, etc. But so there's the collective reckoning, the cultural reckoning. But then it's also, as you write in the book, passed on. It's in, I'm lucky in that my dad is Jewish and both of his parents, his grand, my grandmother is Polish and my grandfather's German. And they both somehow decided to leave Germany in the 30s and move to South Africa because things were getting bad. And so my family largely escaped the Holocaust. And they in were a displaced. Sense, and in yeah. a sense, they escape, but they don't escape because they leave family members, cousins, right. gra- siblings that struggle. In a sense, just like you say, we're affected by the cultural, the collective trauma, even though in the book I focus more um, on personal trauma and its impact on the children and grandchildren, the molecular changes, the stress responses of our parents and grandparents. So when we look at catastrophic events like slavery, which then leads to lynching, which then leads to prejudice and killing of black men, I tend to, and and if we look at the Holocaust, I tend to work directly with the family members who of, of those who've experienced harm or those who've caused harm or those who've witnessed harm or who felt guilty or those who remained silent, because I've, I've discovered that the descendants of the victims and the perpetrators are equally affected. And, and mm-hmm. of course, this all contributes to the frequency of collective, the collective experience. Yeah, and then the, the lack of revo- the resolution that has to be found, right? We keep, rep- it's the idea too, that like we, in some ways, will continue to repeat these patterns or resurface this trauma until it can be addressed and released, right? Or resolved in some way. Put, very well put, because I'm often asked that question, what makes traumas repeat? And what I've seen, most of us have trauma in our family history, yet not everybody manifests the effects of inherited family trauma. And why is this? Why do some people seem to relive and others don't. And epigenetics is just one piece of the puzzle. I talk about this in the book, but embryologists have known for a hundred years that when our grandmother is five months pregnant with our mother, the egg that is in our mother's womb as a fetus, because the cell line stops dividing, is all the eggs our mother will ever have. And one of those eggs one day will become us. So in a sense, we're already present in our mother's womb inside of our grandmother's womb. And when we look at the work of, let's say, Bruce Lipton, and we know that a parent's emotions, a mother's emotions are chemically communicated to the fetus through the placenta, that we know that even her emotions can biochemically alter the genetic expression of the fetus, the offspring. So the question, what anchors these traumas? There's epigenetics, there's embryology, There's mother's experience and mother's disconnect or connection with the fetus. What I find is what creates these repetitions is when traumas, as you said, 
aren't resolved. They're not, they're either not talked about or the healing is incomplete because the pain is so great or the, the grief is so great or the embarrassment or the shame, whatever it is, we, we don't want to confront what's uncomfortable or people in our mm-hmm. family system, our family history, they're excluded, they're rejected. And basically there's not been any resolution. Then what we see are aspects of these traumas can show up in later generations unconsciously will repeat the pattern or will share a similar unhappiness as our parents and grandparents until the trauma finally has a chance to heal, as you said. You know, Freud talked about this 100 years ago when he talked about the idea of repetition compulsion, that the contraction of the trauma is seeking its expansion. So the contraction Mm -hmm. keeps bringing up the same old mishmash, the same old mess, the same old suffering, the same old misery until we find fertile ground in which to heal. Yeah. And what I thought was so striking about some of the stories in the book is that it's not always conscious. It's not that these are stories that are passed down that we've somehow integrated and are acting out. Sometimes we have no awareness of them, like the story of the 19-year-old who's he didn't know he had an uncle who froze to death at 19 or the woman who was obsessed with had suicidal ideation and wanted to vaporize herself. Those are her words and didn't know that her, was it her grandmother who had converted to Catholicism, but who had lost her entire family had been vaporized in Auschwitz and acting out. You never talk about that in her family. When you're with grandma, you walk on eggshells. You never bring up that trauma. And these traumas aren't talked about. There's not a chance for resolution in the family. I I worked with this 16-year-old boy with uh, recently with a rare neurological disorder. When he was 10 years old, he began experiencing intense burning sensations on his skin. And the doctors couldn't figure out why this was happening. They couldn't figure out any root cause. And it wasn't until I spoke with his mother, she told me about a trauma that his father had experienced when he was around the same age, at 10. He was playing with matches, and he accidentally set the garage on fire, and then the house caught on fire, and the father's brother died in the fire. And the father never forgave himself. But because the trauma remains unhealed and unresolved, the man's son begins expressing symptoms, the burning sensations on his skin around the same age. And the family never made the connection, but once the connection's brought to the surface, then we can work together, which we did, and the boy's symptoms subsided. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. 
Okay, let's get back to the conversation. And so what does that look like, the way that you work with people and know people are trained in this method? Is it you're this boy's therapist for life? Or is no. this more of a, pro- not a project, but like you you work until there's able to be, and I'm assuming in that case, the father needs to resolve it as well. Or is it just the boy recognizing that it's not his? In that case, you hit it on the head. The father needed to tell his son, hey, when I was 10, there was this trauma in the family. I lit matches. I felt horrible. My brother died. It was my fault. I could never talk about it. That's why I drink a lot. That's why I shut down, etc. And strange that your symptoms, your burning sensation really was never yours in the first place. You know, it's, it, What I do when I work with people is I look at, you read it in the book, trauma language. I look at the verbal and the nonverbal trauma language that we all carry that's out of sight. It's unseen by us. For example, it's in our words. It's in our behaviors. It's in our self-sabotaging behaviors, our destructive behaviors. I've discovered that when a trauma happens, yes, it leaves a change in the DNA, but it also leaves clues that are left behind in the form of emotionally charged words and sentences that form a breadcrumb trail. And when we learn how to follow this breadcrumb trail, it's, oh my God, there's the missing piece of the puzzle, which allows the, the whole picture to come into view and finally gives us a context for why we've been feeling this way. And this verbal language and nonverbal language can be, I'll give you an example. I worked with another woman who developed cancer a few months after her dog died. And the verbal language that she said to me, I was with him for 16 years and he was everything to me. And I write this down because we're working together and it's 16 years, he was everything to me. And then we start to dip into her family history and we find out her mother's favorite brother was killed in a car crash when the mother was 16. And this brother Mm. was everything to her. And then this client's father was also 16 when his father died suddenly of a massive stroke. And so here she is an only child carrying the unresolved grief and pain of both parents. So her verbal sentence is, I was with him for 16 years. He was everything to me, which is important. And her nonverbal language is developing health symptoms, health issues after her dog dies that she's with for 16 years. That becomes part of her nonverbal trauma language. Again, nonverbal languages, we're looking for the physical and the emotional symptoms that show up after an unsettling event. We look for the fears, the anxieties that strike suddenly when we reach a certain age. Often it's the same age, like that boy I talked about in the book who was 19, that his family member dies at 19. Mm -hmm. It's often the same age that something traumatic happens in the family history. Or or we look for our depression that strikes or our destructive behaviors that shows up after a situation that's similar to a trauma in our family history. This nonverbal trauma language, it's also... It's mirrored in our relationship struggles, who we choose, the types of relationships we choose, the treatment we get. It's also mirrored in the ways we deal with money and success. All of this forms a breadcrumb trail that we need to follow. Yeah. And the language is so 
amazing because so when you diagram it out in the book and talk about it in their exercises for people to figure out their own core language and the core map and their core issues really or core complaint but it is striking how these things sometimes stick out and it's that's random or that doesn't fit right it's not I guess the point is it's not ours it's someone else's and we're acting it out without being aware of how it's not ours, which I think oh, it also makes it really confusing because it's like, where does this come from? Oh, exactly. And the reason language, I just because it's a good question, why language? We know from trauma theory that when a traumatic event happens, significant information of the trauma bypasses the frontal lobes. So the experience of exactly what happens in this trauma, it can't be named or ordered through words because our language centers have become compromised. And then without language, our experiences get stored as fragments of memory, fragments of body sensations, fragments of images, fragments of language, emotions. It's like the mind disperses and essential elements of the story get separated. We lose the story. We never complete the healing. Yet one of the things I talk about is that the pieces are not lost. (laughs) They've simply been rerouted and then they can resurface in our verbal and our trauma and our nonverbal, our verbal and our nonverbal trauma language. It's like the person that comes to a therapist and says, I don't deserve to live. And the therapist right. says, what did you do? And the person says, well, I didn't do anything. But if, the, if we know as clinicians to look back in the family history, we might find somebody who did do something, who harmed somebody inadvertently, accidentally, uh, on purpose. Maybe even I remember the very first case that taught me how to look for this type of trauma language. And I don't mention it in the book. One of the reasons I don't mention it is it, it's so heavy handed a case, but I think it, you know, since we're in, in the middle of it here, I might as well bring it up. I was working with this young cutter. She was 24 years old and I'm going to call her Sarah just for the sake of this interview, at least. So, and, and here's the nonverbal trauma language. Sarah cuts so deeply that she almost bleeds to death. She cuts into her arm or her leg or her abdomen. She's 24. She cuts so deeply that she hits a major vessel and her parents have to rush her to the hospital because she's going to bleed to death. And this keeps happening. And then they put her in a psych ward for weeks at a time. And one day she comes out of the psych ward and we're doing a session and I hand her a pen. And this is, oh my God, this is 30 years ago. I don't even know what I'm doing. This is the first case that, that I, I work with inherited trauma. And I hand her a pen and I go, pretend, Sarah, this is your knife. And you're about to cut in your arm. Bring the pen to your arm because I want to know somatically. That's what I did know how to do back then. I wanted to see what she did. I wanted to see what happens in her body, in, in her somatic body. So she holds the pen to her arm. And all of a sudden, I see her glaze over and I see her dissociate. And I go, there, right there, Sarah. What's that impulse? What's that feeling? What's that right there? And she says, she looks at me and she says, I deserve to die. And I said, Sarah, what did you do? Did you cause an accident? Did you take somebody's life? Did you uh, break up with someone who killed himself? She said, no, nothing like that. And so I did what I knew how to do 30 years ago. I looked at her childhood. I looked at her attachment. I looked at her relationship with her mother and father. And at least I'm flummoxed because she has a great relationship with her mom. 
great relationship with her dad. She's able to receive their love, their care, their nurturance. She has a secure, safe attachment. So luckily, I asked this question, but this question would change my life. I said, tell me about your grandparents. So she does. And she says, and drops the bomb. She says, oh, my father's mother was an alcoholic and she's driving the car drunk. And grandpa is in the front seat and she crashes into a telephone pole and she lives. But grandpa goes through the windshield and gets cut, lacerated on Mm. the glass and bleeds to death before the ambulance arrives. And right there, she tells the whole story because somehow in her cutting, he bleeds to death. And somehow Mm. in her verbal language, she deserves to die. And all of a sudden I go, oh my God, Sarah, this this isn't your story. And so I set up two chairs in the room and I say, Sarah, close your eyes and see your grandfather that you never met and tell your grandpa, tell him, grandpa, I cut so deeply that I nearly bleed to death. And I had her add these words, the way you did, grandpa. And she's crying at this point. She goes, the way you did, grandpa. And I said, so while your eyes are closed, what's your grandpa saying to you or showing you? And she says, he doesn't want me He says, this is mine, and he doesn't want me to do this. And he says, every time I go to cut myself, to think of him there supporting me. And I said, great. Now close your eyes and look at the other chair, Grandma, and tell her, Grandma, I have this feeling that I don't deserve to live, that I need to die. And I know that this is how you felt taking someone's life, your beloved's life. And I know this is not my feeling, Grandma. This would be your feeling, and it's living in me. And grandma, the same thing, who she's been dead ever since the father was 20, died of alcoholism, poisoning. And she says in her inner image, she says, my grandma says the same thing, that every time I have this feeling to cut, to see her there holding me, supporting me. And I said, great. So next, so when you go home and you cut, instead of cutting, take an extra minute and just feel the support of your grandmother and grandfather there with you. And, and she doesn't cut. And this goes on. She never cuts again, Mm -hmm. which is the end of the story. But just to make sure, I invite the father into the session and I put Sarah on a couch to watch. And the father had was so angry at his mom for killing his dad that he'd blocked the grief because every time he tries to feel the grief of his dad, he was 12. Every time he tries to feel the grief of his dad dying, instead he feels the anger that which blocks it at his mother. Mm-hmm. So I ha- I have him look behind the mother. I said, wonder what caused her alcoholism. And when we look behind, we see that she was given away to foster care when she was three. And the father makes this cool connection of, no wonder my mom drank. And in that moment, he was able to access his feelings of compassion, of love for his mother, able to grieve his father. And the coolest thing, Elise, happens at the end of the session. He literally looks over at Sarah and he says, Sarah, you leave this with me. I've got this. And -hmm. at that moment, my life changed. I realized, number one, there's such a thing of inheriting trauma. And number two, we need to work (laughs) with it. And that's what opened. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's a beautiful and sad story, but probably not that uncommon. And, and, And it's shocking in a way to hear that because... I've certainly, I'm not a cutter, but like I, and and when I opened this, I mentioned my mom and my aunt. My mom's the oldest of seven. My aunt is the second oldest. My grandmother has died. 
And she was major attachment issues, not a great mother. And it's interesting because the three of us all have hyperventilation disorder, a lot of anxiety. And so I'm hoping as they talk this through and try to piece together their family history, that there's some resolution that I can also benefit from. Because I always thought it was mine until probably the last three years or so when I've been like, this isn't mine, but I don't know, I don't know how to resolve it. So for people who feel that way and who don't have access to family records, I don't know, something definitely happened to my grandmother. I just don't know what it was. And maybe it was enough that her older brother died when he was two. Absolutely. But how do you, Wait, let's go how back do you to figure that. it let's, out? Let's go yeah. back to what you do know, because it's interesting that you say this. So grandma's older brother dies when he's two or grandma would be how he's old? He's two. And grandma- She's younger than him. So it was before she was born. Okay. So, and yeah, he so died you, of, you I guess, it. meningitis. You, you nail it right there. So grandma, great grandma then has this next baby, grandma, in all this grief. Sometimes people do that. They think, oh, my baby died. My baby died. I've got to have another baby. Rather than feel the grief, move through the grief. Sometimes we get pregnant again, which is a horrible situation for grandma, who's born into the this field of this grief, this sadness, this death. She's not going to get a lot and then not going to be able to give a lot. And kudos to you, brilliant, giving your mom the book so your mom and her sister are able to do this work. See, what I find are inherited traumas can rigidify the family, that's true, but they can also affect attachment. So a trauma can affect grandma, the amount of love grandma has to give and the amount of love mom can receive. And then Mm -hmm. if there's not a lot of love mom can receive, mom's defenses will block receiving even a semblance, an inkling of this love because she'll feel that she's not seen or mirrored or heard. And mommy, I don't want you to hurt me anymore. So I don't let your love come in. Now your mom, who's not receiving her love from grandmom, now she can't give that love. And when she looks at her own children, there may not be enough of an awareness of what to give because she herself doesn't get it because of all yeah. sets up all it gets all set up from this brother dying of meningitis. And remember, in the trauma of the meningitis, grandma's probably saying, Oh my gosh, I didn't get him to the right doctor. I didn't see the signs. I didn't see the fever. It's all my fault. Or it's my husband's fault. We he took us, he moved us to the in other words, there's so much defense going on that we can't just grieve these traumas the way we're supposed to in our healing. And instead, we try to have a new baby, or we push the trauma away. And you've beautifully, thank you for talking about your family history and allowing it to come out, but that's exactly what happens. And then our mom Mm. can't turn to us and mirror our feelings and see our vulnerability and can't feel our needs because she didn't get it. And all that happened was mom's older brother, dies of meningitis when he's two. Grandma feels guilty, grandma rigidifies, and so on and so forth. And not, so she went on to have 11 kids. It's a big Catholic family. But some kids, to quote my mom, and it might be my mom's perspective, feeling like she got at the short end of the stick and my grandmother, but 
But Some absolutely, like eleven they... kids is too many. If we think about it, there's somehow a line. No, wait, there's a line that kind of gets drawn at six or seven kids. That's enough. Mom can steal a tune. But when you're one of eleven, good luck getting enough. So we, find, I often find that people say, "There's no trauma in my family, and I'm one of 11. And, and I go. That in of itself, how are you getting seen with mom running around trying to manage the needs and tender vulnerabilities of each baby with so many kids? So there's another trauma. Right. Yeah, no, for sure. And it's, and then, but so then is the recourse that and my mom, for whatever reason, will never get into therapy, but hopefully she's listening to this and she will. Is it just calling her mom in? And calling her great, her grandmother in, is that sometimes enough? Or do you need to go deeper? So because we either have attachment trauma or inherited trauma, meaning we've inherited the stress response or the chemical changes, the molecular changes of mom or dad or grandma or grandpa, we now have mom or dad or grandma or grandpa's stress response. We've got their trauma brain. We've inherited the brain's adaptation to this trauma, which means there's been a gene expression because of this trauma. And one of the adaptations is to tighten or to shut down, to use more of this gene, to silence this gene, to turn up this gene, to turn down this gene, to activate this gene, to help us survive this trauma. So we've now inherited this stress response. And that's what we've got to calm. Me, you, everybody listening, we've got to calm the brain stress response, whether we've inherited it or whether the trauma happened to us. So the way we do that, and the neuroscientists are brilliant at teaching us this, we've got to have positive experiences that can change our brain. And then we need to practice the new feelings and the new sensations associated with these experiences. And when we do this, we not only create new neural pathways, but we, we begin to stimulate the release of important feel-good neurotransmitters, dopamine or serotonin or GABA, or even feel-good hormones that we need like estrogen or oxytocin. Even we can change our genes by practicing these sensations. We know that from mindfulness studies. And these positive experiences can be practices of like receiving comfort and support like Sarah did. Remember Sarah when she goes to cut? Instead, she's going to receive the support of her father saying, leave this with me or grandpa, grandma with her. These are in her realm of experiences that are with her whenever she goes to cut. And I teach those in the book, how to feel comfort and support even when there was none. Or I mm-hmm. teach how to have feelings of compassion, which is another feeling that feeds the prefrontal cortex or feelings of gratitude having a gratitude practice or a generosity practice or feeling feelings of loving kindness or practicing mindfulness, really, at least anything that allows us to feel strength or peace or joy inside, because these feeling states, these types of experiences feed the prefrontal cortex and, and help us reframe that stress response. So it has a chance to downregulate, to calm down, and that's how we heal. And it's interesting, too, because it seems like for some of what you write about, the consciousness or the awareness isn't often enough. This idea, which I thought was so fascinating, that sometimes we won't allow ourselves to have more 
than what a previous generation might have had, the ways that we limit ourselves in order to not have a happy relationship where maybe our parents did not or have financial success, like this need to repeat or echo previous generations. And is that healing or is all that's required there just conscious awareness of what's happening? It can be so amazing when somebody makes the connection that let's use just what you're saying. Let's use grandma becomes a widow at 30. Mom and dad separate. At 30, we look at our partner and we say, he or she just doesn't do it for me anymore, but we don't make this connection that it's not really our trauma, that we're literally inheriting a stress response or a what I like to call an ancestral alarm clock that starts ringing at a particular age. That's just like you said, it's almost like mom, dad, if you suffer, if you struggle, I won't have, and this is unconscious totally, I won't have more than you. It's almost like I'm not allowed to have more than you. Yes, sometimes there, the awareness can be enough where we can say, oh my God, this isn't mine. This is what happens in my family. I don't have to do it the same way. But when I work with somebody, I'll do some eyes closed movements or sentences or visualizations or boundary work. I might have somebody, for example, take a yarn and put it around their body so they can start beginning to feel their own core as separate from their mother's. I might have somebody, so wrap that, that yarn three feet around your body so you can feel your own space, your own energy, your own feelings, that they don't have to be merged with your mom's or your dad's. And in fact, set these foot, these shoes outside the boundary and say, mom, over there are your feelings, your suffering, your struggles, your joys, your sorrows, your misfortune. What happened to you with dad? What happened to you with your mom? What happened to you in your relationships? I can see that in here and this boundary, as I breathe down and expand it, this is my space, my feelings, my core, my inner and outer space. And that all that gets to stay in here are my feelings and all your feelings and how you think about me and your criticisms or your pain. All of that has to stay over there with you. Only in here get to remain my feelings. So as you notice, what I'm doing with somebody, just by telling you this at least, I'm actually working with a inner experience of an inner core and a feeling of strength, which feeds the prefrontal cortex. So I might have somebody mm -hmm. go home and practice setting up this yarn several times a day where they feel their own core, their own space, and they don't have to merge with mom's feelings. Because you're exactly right. We can unconsciously repeat the suffering of mom and dad without even knowing we're doing it. And then how important is the, like how important, and I know that there are sort of ways to create your family tree and to get those stories. But how important is it to have the full story? Or is it can you do the work even if you're let's say you well, I know that being adopted can inherently be traumatic because of 
obviously separation, et cetera. Sure. They have to, there'll be an attachment wound that first right. has to be worked through before we might even get to the inherited trauma. But I love your question. What do you do if there's no information? I'm adopted. What do yeah, you do if exactly. there's no information? Mom and dad aren't talking. What do you do if there's no uh, mom and dad or grandma never shared her story? This information, as I talk about in the book, it lives in our trauma language, both in our verbal and our nonverbal. So it's there. It's in our fears. Right. It's in our unexplained symptoms. It's in our self-destructive or self-sabotaging behaviors. It lives in the symptoms of an illness that appear after an unsettling event or show up at a certain age. It's in our relationship struggles and how we deal with career, money, success, all of that. So even if we don't know the exact story, just by following this breadcrumb trail, we can get more than a glimpse of what may have happened in our family history, even if the story's been lost or kept secret then we can work with it. I don't know who so you enough. are that, yeah, I don't know who you are that did something terrible, but I feel that I'm going to do something terrible. And every time I get into the self-deprecating or self-hating behavior, I know that it's not mine because it's, I didn't do anything. So whoever you are in my family, I'm going to put my hand on where I feel this in my body. And I'm going to breathe this out to whoever you are and include you as a member of my family history, even though I don't know you. And I'm going to, every time I feel this, see you there supporting me or breathe this out and see you taking it um, inside rather than me taking it inside. There's so many ways, depending on how I'm working with this person somatically. There's so many avenues I might choose how to work depending on what shows up in the body, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I also thought that the list that you have in near the back of the book about the 21 invisible dynamics was so interesting. And I'm assuming that this just primarily comes from your work and what you've observed, mm -hmm. because some of them are quite obvious, like you had a difficult relationship with your mother is the first one. And then some of them are quite surprising, like your parent or grandparent jolted a former partner. Or ah, so you're talking your about that or, list of relationship dynamics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It keeps, sorry, your parent keep going. or grandparent No, no, just like your parent or grandparent remained alone or your parent or grandparent suffered a marriage or one parent died young. It's interesting how some of them are, or someone in the family didn't marry. Because I think for people who are struggling to find relationships or healthy relationships, sometimes that can be sort of like, I don't know why, right? Like, yeah, just read that Why? list of the 21 dynamics and yeah. you'll figure it out. Yeah, but I agree with you. It's surprising. It's a very surprising list. Like somebody has the core. So I have this chapter called The Core Language of Relationships. And, and so in the, at the end of that chapter, I give out this 21 dynamics that affect relationships. Just like in the next chapter, I think there's 19 or 20 dynamics that affect our financial solvency. And you're right. When we look at these lists, they're quite surprising. And, and you're right. There can be unconscious alignments or unconscious identifications. You mentioned that one, somebody stayed alone or didn't marry. So our mom's sister, let's say, never marries and never has a full life and stays alone and a loner and isolated. We could have an identification with this aunt and we can not marry. And then you mentioned another one, dad jolts his fiance to marry mom. So he's engaged to this woman or he's married to this woman. And then he meets mom and says, the heck with her. And he marries mom. But then the daughter can not 
do well in relationship because the woman he jolted doesn't do well. And then you ask, wait a minute, what does that woman have to do with my family? In a sense, everything. Your family would never have lived, existed, if dad didn't leave that former partnership. So in other words, because that system, it's systems theory, if that system failed because dad leaves her to be with mom, the child has an unconscious obligation or debt to that system. Hey, I got to live. I got to be alive because dad jolted you. And in a sense, that isn't right, but I have to live it the way dad did it. And I love my dad. But because you got jolted and you never went on and married again and you stayed alone, unconsciously identified with you, I don't marry I stay alone. Yes, these are quite surprising, Elise. I agree with you. And when somebody reads that list, hopefully they start to fill out their genogram. You know, I have people, I teach people how to build that genogram. So they learn, I I call it a traumagram, really. So they can list these events in the family history. So it's not such a mystery. Because remember, I'm working with people who have no clue as to why they're suffering. We're all walking around with this mystery that we live with, the unexplained symptoms we inherit, the fears that we think are ours, but they're really didn't begin with us, the anxieties that showed up after we were rejected by our high school girlfriend or boyfriend, and the anxieties never left, the obsessive thoughts that showed up after we had this neighbor who you know, went after us, and, and this neighbor represents some other trauma but we that we biologically inherited from our parents and grandparents. So yes, it's very important we do our inner work, that we find out what our core language is, our trauma language. What's our verbal trauma language? What's our nonverbal trauma language? People always ask me, how do I know if I'm affected by, with inherited trauma? And I always say, there's signs. <laughs> there's signs. Is this the sort of therapy which it seems like a tangential or, or additive to what you might already do that anyone would benefit from? Or do people typically, is it like best reserved for people who are at the end of their rope or working through something that's in trans, like they can't move through it, this, the core complaint, they can't understand it. And then how do they, is it, I know you still see people, right? And you train people. And Bert Hellinger sort of was your greatest teacher. Are there other people who do family constellations therapy? Well, the work I do is I've taken the family constellations from Bert, who I love and adore. He was my greatest teacher. And I've moved into a place of working with just inherited trauma and attachment trauma. Basically, it's for all of us to look. The bottom line is every one of us needs to practice being with what's uncomfortable in our body, to practice being with the uncomfortable sensations in our body until we can reach what's beneath them. Sensations we Mm -hmm. experience as life-giving, like uh, sensations like pulsing or tingling, softening, expanding, blood flowing, waves of energy, waves of warmth, being able to stay with what feels like a resource, what feels supportive. And then we need to be able to hold these sensations, these resources, this energy, this, these currents, these waves, these 
this tingling for at least a minute and do it six times a day. So it, it's an, it, it can be enough to change our brain and calm our stress response. So the answer to your question, do many of us have stress responses that can't calm down? Uh, yeah, I'd say all of us. <laughs> like <we're, laughs> We all struggle with this limbic brain that's thumping, this amygdala that's maybe grown twice its normal size and signaling constantly. Every time we run into a situation that's uncomfortable, our amygdala's sending out alarm signals to the alarm towers of our body saying, numb, get out, leave, shut down, tighten. And, and many of us are doing that all day long, and we're not living in our core. We're not living in our body. We're living in our limbic brain. We're not living in our prefrontal cortex. So again, we need to practice pulling traction away from the limbic brain, and, and the amygdala, and bringing engagement to the forebrain, specifically the prefrontal cortex, where we can integrate these new sensations, these new experiences, and our brains can change. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Mark Lynn. For more of his tools, pick up a copy of his book, It Didn't Start With You, and visit his site, marklynn.com. Lynn is spelled W-O-L-Y-N-N. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.